0: This resource is produced by Discipleship.org, championing Jesus' way of disciple-making. Attend the next National Disciple-Making Forum by registering at Discipleship.org. The following audio comes from the 2016 National Disciple-Making Forum. The theme this year was Culture Shift, Back to Jesus' Way of Disciple-Making. Discipleship.org brought together 10 disciple-making organizations, all in one place, each organization hosting a different track. One of those 10 tracks was hosted by Disciple First Ministries with Craig Etheridge and his team. Here's audio content from Disciple First and their track called Transitioning a Church to a Disciple-Making Focus.
1: Thank you everybody for being here today and we're excited to have you be a part of this track. Uh, let me kind of give a little explanation of uh, what we're what we're into here before we get started. Make sure this is the track you wanted to be in. Um, this track is about how to transition a church to become a disciple-making church, okay? So that's the that's the track. My name is Craig Etheridge, and uh, I'm the pastor at uh, First Baptist Colleyville, Texas, which is right by the DFW Airport. So we are, it's right smack in the middle of Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, and I've been there for about nine years, uh, so really glad to, to be there and... Uh, what i 'm going to be sharing with you is uh, material that um, that really god 's been teaching me over the course of probably about fifteen to twenty years uh, the reason let me just kind of give you a little background of this before we dive into it uh, I was um, Uh, College and seminary student really thinking about disciple making, really wasn't sure how to do it or what that looked like. Never seen a disciple making pastor before. Never had really uh, engaged with anybody in leadership in the church on disciple making. And so as college uh, leader, I thought, well, just try this out. You know, just try to do something. So I I broke all the disciple making rules, all right? I had... I had guys and girls together. I had them, um, two big of groups. You know, I remember my wife and I had everybody in our little studio apartment, and some people were kind of up on the steps and down in the and we were just packed in there. We were trying to go through some material. Uh Didn't know if any of it would take. Uh Now that I look back on that, God raised three or four pastors up out of that, and a lot of church leaders out of that. And so we look back and say, you know, even when you do it all wrong, the Holy Spirit still wor- is working. Amen? And, um... And so we uh, we were, th- the wheels were starting to turn, went to a church in Oklahoma City. Have any Oklahoma people here? No? Uh, well, oh, a couple? Where where were you living? In? You were in Tulsa. Okay, that's Sand Springs. Okay, yeah, I know where that is. All right. There, there's trees over there in Tulsa. Yeah. Yeah, those things that grow on the ground and stick up. Um, and... Uh, I was in Oklahoma City, and I was pastoring a church It was an inner city church, a transitioning neighborhood. A lot of the churches around us were dying. This was my first time to be a senior pastor and um, we, I pulled out every bag of tricks that I knew. Of you know, we're going to have a friend day. We're going to have a love my church day. And we're going to have, we're going to do all those things that you do to try to get the wheels turning. And and it wasn't happening the way I had hoped, I would expected. And so when you don't know what to do, uh, you call a consultant, right? So I called a consultant. And he did this CAT scan of the church and evaluated how our church was going. And I will never forget sitting in my office and his report was on my desk. And I was sitting there just looking at it. And I thought, you know, uh, I'm I'm afraid if I open this up, he's going to give me bad news. But I am also had a little bit of hope that maybe he's going to have that silver bullet that's going to turn this thing around. And I opened up the report and started to read it. And basically what he said is that the church doesn't fit the neighborhood, which I knew that. And so you can either relocate or it will die. End of story. And I remember just feeling like a punch in the gut. Like, you know, this is not what I came here for, was to hold the hand of a dying church. And this surely could not be God's will for this church. And I remember getting on my knees and burying my nose in the carpet and crying out to God and saying, God, I do not know what to do. I am a new pastor. I've been in this for three years. I've emptied my bag. I've got no other options here. Please show me what to do. And it was during a season of real intense Praying and fasting and crying out to God. I had our staff meeting at, you know, 6 a.m. in the morning and we'd pray through together and we had godly people praying with us and just, God, what do we do? What do we do? And coming out of that season of real desperation, which, by the way, is an important key word here, desperation. Out of, out of that season of desperation, there were some aha moments. And one of the aha moments was, Craig, you've got to stop it with all the running after every model that you can find of church life, and going, we're going to be like this one. No, we're going to be like this one. No, we're going to be like that one. No, we're going to be like that one. you got to stop with that. You need to come back to what did Jesus do and begin to, as best you can, model the life of Jesus Christ. That was a, a huge pivot point in, in the philosophy of ministry. So coming out of that moment. We just started to study what did Jesus do? What did he do in year one? What did he do in year two, in year three, in year four? What did, how did Jesus ignite a movement that transformed cultures and the world? How did he uh, ignite multiplying movements? How did he do that? And so we began to study in that. Along the way, God dropped some people in my life like Bill Hull. Who I met when I was doing my doctor work in Chicago, uh, guys like Dan Spader, both of them are here uh, at this conference today, and other godly people that God began to bring into my life, and we began to adjust the ministry of the church to fit that. We started making disciples and make disciples. We saw multiplication happen in that church. We were a we the church multiplied by planting four, uh, five or six churches and multi-site. Uh, Reaching into the urban city, seeing kids come to Christ. The church grew in an area where everybody would say churches don't grow. And God was, again, faithful to his plan. Amen. His plan and not necessarily our plan. Uh, When I moved to Colleyville uh, from Oklahoma to Texas, I'm a Texan by birth, so the Oklahoma trip was really my foreign mission service. Uh, I came back home. Uh, and, and again, went to a church that was uh, off the rails, you know, had internal strife, struggles. Y'all don't have any churches like that, I'm sure. But, uh, but this one was off the rail, a lot of tension and division splits and craziness. And and yet what we just did was we came back to the same eye. What did Jesus do? And started discipling leaders, uh, training up emerging leaders, helping people empower them to disciple and make disciples that make disciples where they live, learn, work and play. And as a result of that, health came to the church, strength came to the church, being able to multiply other churches, uh and and what we sat back and started going, Okay, you know what? The church in Oklahoma was very different than the church in Texas. One was an inner city church. One was a suburban church. One was a uh, resource-deprived church. One was a resource-plenty uh, church. Uh, it, there were so many different. One was ethnically, very ethnically diverse. One is very homogenous. They were, they were very different, and yet the same principles were the same that led to transforming that church to be a disciple-making church. So what I'm going to be sharing with you comes out of the overflow of that 20 years of experience that what I really have come to believe is that these basic principles are necessary to transition a church to become a disciple-making church. And the reason why they are transferable is because they're all out of the life of Jesus. Okay. So uh, what I'm going to be giving you uh, today are things right out of... Uh, the life of Christ. And so we're going to try to help you lead your church to live like Jesus. Okay? When we do the next slide here. Um, here, here's the problem. I don't know if you guys can see this. I'll just read some of this off to you. Every year, more than 4,000 churches close their doors compared to just over 1,000 new church starts. Every year, 2.7 million church members fall into inactivity. Uh, At the end of the 20th century, 1900s, there was a ratio of 27 uh, churches per 10,000 people. In the 21st century, there were 11 churches per 10,000 people in America. Uh, The United States now ranks third following China and India in the number of people who are not professing Christians. Half of the churches in the United States did not add any new members to their ranks in the past two years. That's That's crazy, isn't it? And so that's, that's a problem. I think what we're finding is in our churches that we're not seeing the results that we want. I thought uh, Jim said it really well, when you try to take the message of Jesus and divorce it of the methods of Jesus, then you cannot expect the results. We're expecting the results of Jesus, but we're not doing ministry the way Jesus did ministry. That was my conviction. So anytime I say that, I'm saying that to myself because that that was the pivot point for me. And I think we have to come to, again, to, back to that slide, we have to come to this moment of desperation which I believe the Lord is giving that to us. I believe we are on the cusp of a new movement of disciple-making in and through the local church. I really believe that. I, I've been in the days when they, we were talking to disciple-making and nobody cared about that. Nobody was discussing that. And now all of a sudden, that's the buzzword. People are talking about it. this forum that you're in is the first of its kind. I believe this is an historic moment. I believe we're, we're on the verge of a neo-reformation that, much like the first Reformation that brought us back to the Bible, this second Reformation brings us back to ministry the way Jesus did it. So I'm, I'm very excited and we get to be a part of that. How cool is that? We get to be here. You always say, man, I was here on that first one. And so I believe that is because we're coming out of a point of desperation. We have to realize, man, it's just not, it's not working the way we, we, we want it to work. And so that is the point that moves us toward, uh, examining how we do ministry. So let me just kind of ask a couple of questions here. Um, I want you to talk among yourself for just a second. Uh, meet your neighbor. If you don't know your neighbor, be nice. Meet them. Okay. And, 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 and say, uh, why, do you agree that the church is struggling and why do you think it's so? Okay. Just talk to that, your neighbor about that. Why do you think the church is struggling in America today, right now? Okay. Ready to go. So what we're going to do, by the way, we got a couple of windows open here. We're going to open up the door, try to get some wind blowing through here so you're not too warm. We were cold in the auditorium and warm in here, you know, so uh, it's all good. It's all good. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about seven bold moves Uh, that uh, are necessary moves that you must make if you're leading a church to become an intentional disciple-making church. You know, when you look at the bold moves of Jesus, there were lots of bold moves that Jesus made. You talk about the... uh, uh, Obviously, maybe the big bold move was moving out of heaven into earth. You talk about the bold move of Jesus. Yeah, that's pretty bold, isn't it? The, The bold move of the incarnation. The bold move... Of him confronting the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, you know, or uh, or Matthew twenty five, you know, just that confrontation. You look at uh, the how Jesus boldly uh, called out leaders, the bold move of Jesus to go to the cross, the bold move of the resurrection. Uh, all of these Jesus had was was bold in what he did and made some incredible bold moves. Um, but there were there was uh, one particular. Bold move about Jesus. This is just kind of a little by way of introduction. You know, in Matthew 4, uh, 12. Just flip over right there really quick to Matthew 4. We're going to just touch uh, base here for just a second. Uh, Matthew 4, beginning at verse 12. Matthew 4, verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, a people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those whose dwelling in the region, the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And while walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, uh, who is Peter and Andrew's brother, casting their nets for they were fishermen? And he said to them, "Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men." This is this is a bold, bold move. Uh, John the Baptist had had been uh, put in prison at this point. Up to the, up before this, John the Baptist was the point of the movement. Uh, he was the rock star. People were traveling from all over to follow John the Baptist. Uh, in fact, when the Apostle Paul gets up in Asia Minor, he's finding followers of John the Baptist. And that's without Twitter. Okay? I mean, how did that happen? And so, I mean, there was a wide reach of John the Baptist, but now John the Baptist, the large, huge following, large following, but now John the Baptist has been put to the side. And so who's going to lead the movement? Who is going to step into that vacuum? And so Jesus steps into that vacuum and he begins to do some specific things. Number one, he moves his headquarters from Nazareth to Capernaum, he moved it from a more rural area to Capernaum, which was right by the Via Maris, right by the major trade routes. It was a thriving area, had a synagogue, had, uh, had a Roman outpost there. It was a thriving business center. He moved it from the rural, small rural town to the metropolitan town. All right, He, um, he uh, begins to uh, preach the same message of John. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He also begins to build his leadership team. And so it's out of here that he starts to call out these men, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus is gearing up. He's scaling up for the next level. If he had not done that, then the movement would have disseminated. But Jesus is now... Moving, He's now leading it. Now the curtain comes down on John the Baptist, and the focal point is on Jesus. And Jesus begins to move his public ministry forward. Up to that time, there were about 18 months. You'll see this in a little bit. If you come to the next session, we'll unpack this even more. Up to that point, John the Baptist was the major upfront leader. Jesus was working behind the scenes, calling people, developing people, getting his team ready so that he could call them up into action at this point. So Jesus made bold moves. Bold moves that the whole movement relied upon. In the same way, pastors and leaders must make bold moves or your vision of being a disciple-making church will dissipate. It will fall by the wayside. There are certain bold moves you must make as a leader to transition your church to be a disciple-making church. Now, I've already alluded to the first bold move and that was that you have to move from a um, uh, a a church mindset to the or church model to Christ model, you have to move from saying, "Okay, I'm going to find what church models I like," and I'm going to be like them. And you have to come to the point where you're saying, "I want to model my ministry after Jesus." That is a critical move. That's not what I'm talking about right now. I'm just touching on that, even though that is incredibly critical. We're going to do a little forum on that topic, I think, at the end of tomorrow. So we'll talk more about that. But that is the first bold move. A realization, Jesus' model must be my model, which is what Putnam talked about uh, earlier today. The second bold move, uh, which I want to unpack right now, is the move from decisions to disciples. The move from decisions uh, to disciples. I remember uh, playing golf with a guy that's in our church. I'm not really a big golfer, uh, but he is. And I'm, we're friends, so we did that. And he's a CEO of a large, large company. And I forget, I'm talking about church stuff. And, man, you know, here's the decision I'm trying to make. And what do you think about this, that, and the other? And he's addressing the ball. And he looked up and he said, Craig, you just have to find out what is success, and then do what leads to success?, Pow, you know Wow, that seems so simple, right? And I thought, what is success? You know uh, For a coach, success is winning. You know if, if you're in a business, success is uh, improvement on the bottom line, right? If you're a school system, I guess it's graduation uh, you know, ratios and, and so on like that. What is success for the church? Is it is it just uh growing in number on your weekend services? Is it um increased budget? Is it um uh more buildings and properties that you own? Is, is it recognition of the pastor, how many books he's written or how many you follow him on his blog? I mean, what is success for the what is the what's the scoreboard and how do you win? And so my mind is spinning on this question. And then I started saying, what would Jesus say is success? What would Jesus say is is the win for him? In other words, when we stand before Jesus, what is he going to ask us? And uh, again, that question really falls down into Matthew 28, right? Uh, So let's just read it together. Matthew 28, beginning at verse 18. If you got your Bible, flip over there to it. Matthew 28. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, uh, Jesus' command was what? Make disciples. disciples. I'm really convinced that when you and I stand before Christ, he's not going to say, how many did you have on your blog? How many did you have on that Easter? You know, oh man, you went multi-site? you got to be kidding me. You know, wow. You know, are you? I, I don't think he's going to... And I'm not saying that those things are bad, inherently bad. But if we have all those things, but he's, he's going to say, now, show me your disciples. Who are the disciples that you made? Th- this is what I think is going to be the question. Because this is the single command the what what many have called the divine imperative in that whole section this is the main verb make disciples it is the command. It is the divine imperative. And so, I believe this is what Jesus has called us to do. And yet, we are very much concerned about making decisions for Christ, but not necessarily making disciples. I'm going to unpack that in just a minute. But you probably think about, man, our decisions are down this year. We've got to figure out how we're going to get our decisions up. All right, But are we making disciples? That's, that's the question. So once you decide, okay, I'm, I'm sold I want to do ministry like Jesus did. All right, then the next question is, I have to move my thinking from, okay, not just how do I make decisions, but how do I make uh, disciples. And uh, in our efforts to grow churches, we've got to be careful that we don't do it at the expense of making disciples. So, here's a haunting question for you. Are you making disciples? Do you know them? You Have them written down? Do you or do you know who these disciples are? Now that kind of begs the question: Then, what is a disciple, <laughs> right? Um, what is a disciple? How would you define a disciple? So I'm just saying this is key. You must define what a disciple is. I sat in uh, a room with many of the leaders that are here today. This was about two years ago, and we're and there were some guys that were at that meeting that aren't here today. And uh this subject comes up of what a disciple is. Now we're sitting around the table with guys that have written extensively or have led or leading national ministries on disciple making. And the question comes up: what is a disciple? All of a sudden, a flurry of verbal exchanges uh ensue. All right. Not angry, but just you know, it's got some energy to it. And uh Bill Hull stands up in the room and he said, gentlemen, he said, we are using the same words but speaking a different language when it comes to disciples. Uh, disciple First, which is our organization, we do training and conferences on disciple making across the country. Every time I get with a group of pastors, if we start to have a verbal exchange about what is a disciple, there's always Uh, discrepancy in that because we really haven't come to a grips of what a disciple is. So listen, if you're commanded to make a widget but you don't know what a widget is, then how can you make a widget? Right? Are are you all with me? If you don't know what a disciple is, then how can you even know that you made a disciple? And so, um, one of the things that we have to begin with is to say, what is a disciple? So, let me just kind of talk to you a little bit about um, what is uh, a disciple? When you look at Matthew twenty-eight, uh, verse uh, eighteen and nineteen, Jesus said, "Go make disciples." That word, disciple, is methetes. That's the Hebrew, uh, Greek word methetes, uh which means. anybody know what that word means? L- learner, learner, follower. I'm going to just put learner here. The Hebrew is tall medim. Uh, this is the equivalent in Hebrew. Talmudim would be the name of one who is following a rabbi to be prepared to become a rabbi. Same idea, learner here. Okay, so learner is the key thought when it comes to making disciples. But it is more than just a learner, right? If you're just sitting in a seat and I'm disseminating information, you are a learner. But is that all that Jesus had in mind here? No. No. Because if you look at other passages, and you can do your own homework, just Google search all the scriptures that use the word disciple in them, and you find out the disciple must love one another. A disciple must have a heart for God. And a disciple must be willing to sacrifice. Well, that's a whole lot more than just absorbing information. So Jesus must have more in mind than simply a learner or simply even a person that uh, claims to be a follower of Jesus. Um, I think when you you begin to think about disciple-making, disciple-making did not start with Jesus. Disciple-making predates Jesus. In fact, when Jesus comes on the scene, there are many disciples. There are disciples of the Pharisees, there are disciples of John, there are disciples of Jesus, right? There are many kinds of disciples. So really, disciple-making is rooted in the Old Testament. So when you saw the prophets and they had schools of prophets, this is disciple-making Old Testament style. Uh, and you saw rabbis and you saw prophets uh, leading uh, other and training other people. A great example of this is in First Kings. If you got your Bible you and just flip over there, just real quick, uh, First Kings chapter uh, nineteen. Uh, this is the story of Elijah. Okay, and so uh, Elijah, you know, flees from Jezebel. He's he wants to quit. He's burned out. Uh, he wants to die. God puts him to sleep, brings him back to the mountain. Remember, and he stands in front of the mountain. and You know the story, right? And uh, he's just, just wiped out. He's depleted. And um, God comes before him. And um, remember, he sees, a, he sees a fire. He sees an earthquake. He sees a whirlwind. And God's not in that. Just a still, small voice. And uh, God says, "You know where are uh, what are you doing here, Elijah?" And he said, "I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. And then God from that point on in the middle of verse chapter 19, God begins to say, "Okay, I want you to anoint this king, I want you to anoint this king, and then I want you to go anoint Elisha to follow you." I imagine Elijah going, okay, want that to check, knowing this game check, uh, get my replacement? Er, record scratch. <laughs> what? Am I kinda on the downside? Yeah, you're on the downside. I need mean, by the way, I've got so many more that are loyal to me than you know about. And so Elijah goes to Elisha. And you remember the story? Elisha is plowing. Uh, with twelve oxen and Elijah goes over and kind of throws his cloak on his shoulder. You know that story? Try that when you're going to disciple somebody. Just go throw your jacket on them. See, see, see if that works. You know, I don't know. And, uh, and he goes, wait a minute, you let me, let me go, uh, say goodbye to my parents. And so he goes, and says goodbye. He, he, he takes a yoke and he creates a fire and he has a big Texas barbecue, uh, with the oxen. And then he's off following Elijah. And so, what do they do? You know, as Elijah uh, goes and prays, Elisha learns to follow him, and he begins to pray. As Elisha teaches Elijah teaches, Elisha learns to teach. As Elijah confronts problems, Elisha learns how to confront problems. As Elijah does miracles, Elisha is learning the power of the Holy Spirit in him to do miracles. And so, it gets to the end of uh, their their ministry. There, if you look at 2 Kings, uh, chapter two. Uh, it, you know, they're at the end of their rope and Elijah's about to go up in a, in a fiery chariot and Elisha says, uh, here's my one last request. I just want a double portion of your spirit on me. And Elijah says, you know, that's not me to give, uh, mine to give, but I tell you what, if you see me go up, uh, you will have your request. And of course, you know the story and the chariot comes down and, and Elisha sees it and he says, my Lord, I see the chariots of Israel. And the, the mantle falls to the ground. Now, I just envision it like smoking. you know. And Elijah goes and he picks it up. And this is the mantle of of Elijah. And he walks over to the Jordan River and he hits the water with it. And it rolls up on either side. He walks across on dry ground. And there are prophets there that were following Elijah that see it. And they say, oh, the spirit of Elijah is now in Elisha. The same spirit. Why? So that he can now carry on the work of his master. All right, Now listen, that is a picture of disciple making in the Old Testament. Uh, and, uh, in, in short, really a disciple is a learner who follows a, a, a master in order to become like him and to carry on the work. Okay, so now we're getting a little bit better picture of what a disciple is. A disciple is someone, a learner, who follows a master in order to become like them and to carry on the work. That's what Elisha was doing. He was following his master and he was becoming like him, especially in certain practices and disciplines, as to carry on and to be filled with the same spirit and to carry on the work. Now, When you look at disciple making in the New Testament, you're seeing the very same thing. A disciple is a follower of Jesus who is becoming like Christ and and filled with the Spirit of Christ in order to carry on the work of Christ. That that in a phrase is what a disciple is. And as we've... uh, Wrestled with this idea, you know we, if we cannot define a disciple, you cannot make a disciple, so there has to be it, leaders you have to clarify what a disciple is all right now that's a, that's a that 's a general definition but i want to I want to give you um, I want to give you what I think are uh, uh, some handles for this, and this is why we 've kind of banged this out, okay. As we've kind of worked on, we looked at all the passages that talk about what a disciple is and we list them all down and we talk about them. There were some elements that came to the top for us. When you thought, when you think about something being 3D, you think of it being three dimensional, right? You go to a 3D movie and everything jumps out at you. It looks, it's fully orbed. Okay. So we think about a disciple in terms of 3D. Okay. The first D, Is this, I'm going to give you three D's. This sounds like a a sermon, okay? Uh, The first D is devoted. This disciple is devoted to Jesus, okay? This is a person who has come to faith in Christ. Um, Paul put it simply: If you confess with your mouth Jesus is the Lord, believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead. You'll be saved Romans ten nine. And so this is a person who has come to faith in Jesus. Jesus said, "You must be born again." To Nicodemus, so this here is the question: Has this person is this person devoted to Christ? Have they given their life to Christ? Do they understand the gospel in the New Testament? The disciple was synonymous with a believer. A disciple was synonymous. With a believer in Acts 4.32, those who believed are later referred to as disciples in Acts 6.2. Uh, the disciple was synonymous with a believer in many other passages in the Gospels. Uh, the term uh, disciple is used 261 times uh, in the Gospels. It begins to fade when you get into the epistles and it is replaced with terms like believer, like saint, like brother, sister, uh, this sort of thing. So, at the very least, what you have is that uh, a disciple is a Christian. In fact, in Acts eleven twenty six, those that were devoted to Jesus in Antioch were first called what Christians, right? So, so a disciple, at the very basic minimum, would be devoted to Jesus. Okay, but but that's not all. A disciple is. Let me give you a second word, and that is developing. A disciple, remember, is following the Master so as to become like the Master. Okay, So uh, a disciple must also be developing uh, progressively to look more and more like Jesus. Progressively to look more and more. Um, and, I, and I believe that when I say... Developing, I'm going to put here two elements. I think uh, Putnam said, you know, in developing his love for God, his love for people, I think that is certainly the case. I'm going to, I'm going to spin that a little bit differently and say, uh, developing in the character of Jesus, right? That's what happens on the inside. Just going to put inside here. And also on the competency of Jesus, which is what he did on the outside. Okay. Some people say character and conduct, character and competency. I'll, I'll make an argument for what competencies are a little bit later, but the point being that that this disciple that has this mind in you which is in Christ Jesus, right? That's attitude, that's character. That's that's uh, Galatians uh fruit of the Spirit, 522-23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. That's that's character issues. And then competencies these are the competencies that Jesus trained his men to do. Jesus trained his men to do certain things. Next session, I'm going to tell you what those things are. Okay? But Jesus, when he called them to follow him, and they went into intensive training, he was training them to be competent in certain things. I'm going to show you that next time. Okay? So a, a 3D disciple is someone who's devoted, someone who's developing, the character and competency of Jesus. And then lastly, they are deployed into the mission of Jesus. A disciple is one who follows a master to become like the master and carry on the work. See that? And so a disciple is someone who is deployed into the ministry uh, of Jesus. That they are they're actively engaged. I have a friend of mine who was in Desert Storm. He flew several... Uh, Sorties out into enemy territory. When you say the word "deployed" to him, he knows what that means. Deployed means leaving my comfort zone to engage the enemy on the front line. Uh, deployed doesn't just mean you go work in the children's nursery. Okay, uh, it means you are you're out on the front line of winning the loss, sharing the gospel, making disciples, and make disciples. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 9:37 the harvest is plentiful the laborers are few uh, therefore earnestly ask the Lord of harvest to send forth laborers into the harvest field okay so this is this is what we talk about a 3D disciple. In our church, we've done the the work of it. We said, what we want is somebody that's de- devoted to Christ. Are they saved? Developing? Have they been disciple and trained in some of these areas? And are they deployed? Are they engaged in sharing the gospel? Are they engaged in making disciples? That we would consider as a 3D disciple. Okay? Um, and so... That's what we're trying to make. And that is, at least in our context, we can measure that. We can tell if they're saved. We can tell if they've been discipled. We can tell if they're engaged at some level in the mission. Okay? Any questions about that? Okay? Any questions about that? Now, my point was you got to move from decisions to disciples. And so let's throw up that next slide there. Uh, I, want, I want you to take a few minutes to ask yourself this question. What do you think of of how Jesus measures success? And what about your definition of a disciple? Does your church have a definition of disciple? Okay. I want you to take a few minutes to talk to your neighbor, the one you talked to last time. And I want you to talk about do, does your church have a written definition of a disciple? If it did, if it doesn't, what would it be if you were going to craft one yourself uh, just real quick, talk about that for just a second. Then I'm going to come back and talk more about the difference between these two. Okay, ready, go. All right, let's Let's uh, let's pull back together here for just a second. Anybody have a definition of a disciple? Anybody have a definition of a disciple in your church that you're using right now? Anybody have one? Yes. Okay, very good. All right. What you're finding is a lot. You know, there's different ways of saying a lot of the same major points. There, I think you're going to do that because we're all reading the same book, right? So, but you need to. You've got to contextualize it. And I always tell pastors and leaders, you do the work. You look at the scriptures. You wrestle with them, and you put. You let the Spirit of God lead you to craft it the way that it makes makes good best sense to your people and to your ministry. But you need to have some type of measurement. And I will say this, that uh, it needs to be quantifiable to some degree, you know. Uh, Because if it's not quantifiable, then you can't really measure enough to know if you're really hitting the mark or not. Uh, Obviously, we can't look at a person's heart. uh, But there is fruit in keeping with repentance, right? And there is, uh, Jesus said, Good trees bear good fruit, and you know them by their fruit so we can there should be some things that we should be able to look at to verify yeah, this person is really developing or moving along or growing in the in these areas but um item number one is to be convinced that jesus's model is the is the best model if we don't can't agree on that, then the rest of this is all a moot point right uh number two step though is to move from decisions to disciples, that means you must have some type of written definition of a disciple that you and your team, whether that be a staff or your um, high-value um, uh, volunteers uh, agree on, your leadership agrees on. Now, let me comment a little bit about moving from decisions to disciples. Um, Many times we are focused so much on making decisions and that becomes the benchmark that we don't really put that much effort into making disciples. Let me give you an example of that. When I came to Colleyville, uh, they had a a big outreach ministry to the Hispanic poor areas that were on the outside of our community. And the big outreach, uh, they would uh, buy up lots of toys for Christmas and would advertise in these communities. People would come, literally a couple of thousand people would come through. They would sit through a worship service and a gospel presentation. Then we would move from that into this toy store. They would collect toys that they give their kids uh, for Christmas. And multiple times along through that process, they would hear the gospel. Um, first there, I think we had a couple of thousand people that came through this. Uh, outreach initiative. Uh, the second year I was there, you know, we put a Hispanic evangelist that spoke and spe- preached in Spanish, which is even better because you have to go through a translator. And man, we saw lots of decisions for Christ. I mean, hundreds of people. Right? I think three or four hundred people. Uh, raise our hand to pray to receive Christ. Some people were baptized right on the spot. We got written up in the state paper of being, you know, this evangelistic church and, you know, we're really hitting out of the park. So I'm feeling really good the next day. I'm like, oh man, feeling good. We really moved the needle here. And so we got a stack of People that made decisions for Christ, and we're going to go out and follow up with them and get them involved in a group, get them involved in the church, get them involved in in ministry. And so we start knocking on doors. I went with a team of guys. We, I mean, we went through all the every place knocking on doors. Hey, is so and so there? Yeah, you were at the deal. Yeah, you made a decision for Christ. Yeah, you, well, we we got a Bible study for you. We got a follow up with you. A church that you can be a part of. Oh, no, I didn't sign up for that. Slam the door. Slam the door. Slam the door. Let me. Guess how many people actually joined the church and got involved in a group and followed through with that decision out of hundreds of decisions? Zero. $100,000 worth of financial investment. Hundreds of thousands of uh, work hours gone into this. uh, Tremendous effort. Did we share the gospel? Yeah, we shared the gospel. We got a lot of decisions but we didn't make any disciples I, and i think that that has kind of alerted me to the fact that man we have to be sure that we're we're put in, and this kind of goes even back to what bill holt talks about the gospel that you preach is it a gospel that that calls people to discipleship is it a gospel that calls people to follow jesus or just to make a quick uh decision you know uh, how much money are you putting into efforts that are not producing disciples? That, that's a leadership question. And how do you do evangelism in a way that moves people toward being a disciple of Jesus, not just making a one-time decision with no intention of really following Jesus at all? Um, as I was thinking about that, there is some... If you only focus on making decisions and not on disciples, then you begin to move on two different tracks. For example, when you focus on making decisions, you can easily manipulate people for evangelistic numbers. Right? Hey, we did this and we got the numbers up. But when you focus on making disciples, the pressure is off to hit a certain number because you're trying to get the gospel out clearly and help them to really understand what it means to follow Jesus. So you're not going to manipulate people in the process. It's not going to be like youth camp where you got to get the right guy that gets the people, kids stirred up to make the big decision. But then, you know, the next week, you know, that is long since worn off. I think that, that only inoculates people to the actual gospel. Um, when you focus on dis- making decisions, impersonal methods are often used to boost numbers. But when you focus on making disciples, it's all about relationship. It's all about knowing that person helping them walk through their questions and ferret out or tease out their concerns and really understand what it means to follow Jesus. I remember when my wife and I moved to Oklahoma for the first time we lived in an apartment complex. And uh, while we were building a house, we ended up living in this apartment for several months. So we got to know the apartment manager. He was a young guy. He was living with his girlfriend. His girlfriend got pregnant. They didn't really have anybody, so we uh, threw up a little uh, party for her, baby shower for her, and just loved on them. I never forget taking them out to a steak dinner. I said, man, we're leaving, and I, you've treated us so well. I just want to take you out and feed you a nice steak dinner and say thank you. And so we're, we're, we're digging into our meal, and I said, man, you, you know I'm a pastor, right? He goes, yeah, I know. I said, so let me just talk to you about Jesus. Has anybody ever talked to you about Jesus? And so, over that steak dinner, I'm sharing the gospel with him, and I said, "You know would you be willing to turn the control of your life over to Jesus to let him call the shots?" and he looked at me and said, "You know i don't think i I don't think I want anybody to call the shots on my life but me." Now, the downside of that is, I wish I could say that he said yes and became a missionary to China and led 10,000 people to Christ. That would be awesome, right? But the upside of it is, at least he knew exactly what Jesus wants. It was like, hey man, if you pray this prayer, man, whoo, heaven, awesome. You know, but it was like, hey, you know, he understood that Jesus is calling for your devotion to be fully devoted to him. And so, making disciples, you know, in, in, in means I'm going to be in relationship with this person. I'm going to help walk them through what the gospel means in their life. When you focus on making decisions, the tendency is is to rush through the process uh, very quickly. But when you're focused on making disciples, you really give room for the Holy Spirit to bring legitimate conviction of sin. Uh, a lot of parents will do this: go, "Hey, my my kid, my kid believes in Jesus. My kid believes that." Jesus died and rose again, so they're ready to be baptized, right? You go, well, well, hold on. Is there a conviction of sin in that child's life? Have they repented of their sin? That's that. You've got to leave room for the Holy Spirit to work. And with disciple-making, you're really going to be sensitive to those things. Um, when you're focused on making decisions, you can have a false sense of success. You know, man, we had 400 decisions. We're really knocking out of the park. When, when actually that may be a false sense of success that you have. But if you're focused on making disciples, you're in it for the long term. You're in it for the long haul in these people's lives. One more. When you focus on making decisions, your job is over when the decision is made. When you focus on making disciples, your job is beginning right when the decision is made. Then you're going to take ownership. You're going to become that spiritual parent that not only brings them into the world, but carries them... Uh, on into maturity in Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm a chaplain for our local high school football team. I've been the chaplain for several years. I do that because I need to get around a lot of lost guys. And uh, the head coach at the time was a church member, so he allowed me to come in. At first, the other coaches looked at me and were like, okay, who's this guy? Uh, but now I've been in it for several years. So I'm one of the guys, they call me coach, you know, and I, we go in, I hang out in the coach's office and we talk and everything. One guy, one coach, his name was Alan and Alan, I would, man, I talked to Alan about the Lord. He wasn't really that interested, even though we were good friends, I would invite him to church, never come, never come. One day Alan shows up on Easter, sits in the back. I'm like, awesome. Even better yet, Alan gives his life to Christ. Alan gets saved, and Alan is a different guy. Alan has this hunger for God's Word. I, I mean, he never owned a Bible, and now he's got like three Bibles. You know, he's reading in for breakfast, he's reading his Bible at lunch, he's reading his Bible at night. He's devouring the Word. So I meet, I, I take my, my, during the middle of my day, and I go to his break time, to his office, to his classroom, and we're discipling. I'm discipling him, I'm investing in him. He's growing, he's thriving, he's sharing his faith. I, I just, uh, just two days ago, our youth pastor's son is on that football team. And his son came home and said, hey, Coach Smith, he's sharing with us the scriptures he's memorizing. And uh, and and so my youth pastor tells me about that. So I texted him today and I just said, I just want you to know how proud I am of you. That you're running hard after Jesus. And you're sharing that with these kids and you're making a, an impact. Um, See, that, that required relationship. That required staying with him through those years when he was like, eh, you know, but staying with him. And then once he came to Christ, owning that and saying, you know, okay, let's walk through this together and let's walk through your marriage challenges and your parenting challenges and what does it mean to follow Jesus? Now, I, I want you to hear what I'm, what I'm saying that we need to make disciples. I also want you to hear what I'm not saying. I don't want you to come out here saying, well, Craig's not about making decisions for Christ. This is not a statement about anti-evangelism. Because evangelism is where disciple-making starts, right? It's kind of like people talk about discipleship and evangelism. Well, it's really more like two wings of the plane. Okay, which wing do you not need? All right? (laughs) You need both of them, right? And the same thing is true. You know, evangelism... It's what starts the disciple-making process. I'm not anti evangelistic In fact, if you came to our church and listened to our meetings, we're trying to rev up the evangelism engine at our church. But what I am saying is this, that evangelism retched out of the context of disciple-making can easily deteriorate into manipulation and false decisions that only inoculate people from the gospel. And do not produce life-changing, heart-on-fire followers of Jesus. Which is kind of what we have in our churches today. Right? And so, anytime we, we do that, we suffer. True evangelism always results in true disciples. True evangelism always results in true disciples. Disciples. We need churches that are not fixated on short-term gimmicks to achieve explosive numerical numbers growth numbers. We need churches that are committed to long-term strategy of making disciples that make disciples. So, with that in mind, I want uh, want you to again talk to your neighbor for just a second, and and ask your talk a little bit about how you do evangelism in your church and how 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 does that focus on disciple making or only on decisions? How do, how could you bend it toward focusing on the true disciples and not just simply short term decisions? Okay. Talk about that for just a second. Okay. Ready to go. We've covered just a little bit of review here. What we talked about is you got to make some moves to transition your church. First move is you have to move from church models to Christ model, right? You've got to be convinced that Jesus' model is the best model, is the way. Uh, Secondly, you have to move from decisions to disciples uh, in the sense that you know what a disciple is, that you're committed to making disciples, and not just decisions alone. Okay? And then I made the statement, true evangelism always results in true disciples. That's why you know when you're doing true evangelism, it produces uh, true disciples, right? If you haven't made a disciple you haven't really done the work of evangelism because that's what the evangelism is the first step in disciple making uh okay with that in mind what we're going to do is take a couple of questions a couple of thoughts observations that you have so far uh and then i'm going to give you a quick break okay we're uh, we're right on time we're going to take a short break what we're going to do when we come back here's my little teaser When we come back, I'm going to show you how Jesus made disciples. He actually had a a process of producing this type of result. And I'm going to show you what that process is and how that relates to your church when it comes to programming. So the next topic we're going to talk about from moving from programs to process, okay? All right, this is when it gets really good.
0: You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. Learn how you can grow as a disciple maker by visiting discipleship.org, where you can also register for the next National Disciple Making Forum.